This is the Wicked Problems and Circular Systems Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Ostrike. So I'm going to welcome David Kybe to the show. Dave is an old friend, a collaborator, someone whose thinking I greatly respect. David, why don't you go ahead and just give us an overview of who you are and, and what you do? Sure, and thanks for having me. I live in Washington, D.C. I've been here since ooh, the early 90s. I came here because I was interested in orthodox politics, this kind of mainstream politics. And after being here for a little while, realized that I actually wasn't interested in that at all. <laughs> and from then went on to work on my graduate degree in political science. And my focus was on law and courts and reform efforts and ultimately particularly um, legitimation processes. So it was very kind of steeped in kind of the academic world, kind of disconnected from politics for a long time. And, and then increasingly kind of got back interested in politics, part of the blog era, that sort of thing, at a time when there was a resurgence of kind of progressive interest in politics and trying to um, fight to, you know, push for a, a broader agenda than the sorts of things that were typical at the time. Over time, I kind of moved left. And uh, one of the things that I did along that way was to start the um, DC Jacobin Reading Group. So I was running that uh, for, I think we started, I want to say 2013, but it it has been a while. Meeting with large groups of folks, talking about uh, socialism, which was uh, a pretty interesting time. I think there for a time, we were probably the largest socialist organization in Washington, D.C. In 2017, I joined the Democratic Socialists of America, DSA, as many people were doing at the time. Many things kind of push people in that direction. Occupy, Black Lives Matter, Bernie Sanders run for the presidency, Trump's winning of the presidency. Um, So I kind of came in with that wave of people. What I got involved in, which makes sense given my background, was political education. So over time, I helped develop sessions on topics related to socialism for both our our chapter members, but also to the public at large. Since the uh, coronavirus, we've moved that online. So we've been doing sessions that that whole time. So what that means is we're um, I'm working with people oftentimes that are um, new to DSA, new to socialism, um, very interested in kind of uh, a broader view of politics and a broader view of the sort of world we want to live in, trying to figure out what that looks like. And so uh, extremely online, you know, very much on Twitter, <laughs> uh, which is why I know Chris, um, perhaps uh, too much. My role in all this is political education, and I, I see that as something that has value in its own, own right, but is always um, there to help us change the world, to support the organizing, to help people figure out how to relate to politics in order to make things uh, change. And that's a weird thing to say, but for so many people, their relation to politics, um, and I think the sort of mainstream ways you're taught to think and talk about politics are more like you're the audience or mm-hmm. um, you're a cheerleader or yep it's a it's not really as a as an agent um, and so that's kind of the one of the most important things that I do is try and help people realize that you have agency in politics and that collective agency not on your own but working with other people and maybe unlearning some of the habits that they learn uh, when they're learning politics in the first place you, you mentioned socialism I, growing up in the midwest the word socialism is like a third rail it, it's just this dangerous thing you just don't even learn about you don't even talk about it so it would be great if you could give a you know 30 second pitch of this is what socialism means to me to help for anyone who's terrified of the word maybe look at it differently 
Sure. I mean, I grew out up, uh, outside of Philadelphia and there was not a lot of socialism talk where, where I grew up either. I think the key to understanding socialism is to understand capitalism. So I'm going to do the real short version of this. And yeah. that is that under capitalism, you have private organization, private ownership over the means of production. And fundamentally what that means is that many of the most important decisions about um, how society's resources are used and how we live and um, what we do with those resources and all those things are controlled by a relatively small group of people, um, mm -hmm. those who own the means of production. And for the vast majority of us, um, we are forced to work. Um, and if we don't work, then we will go without. Um, so there's a class of people who support themselves through ownership and a class that um, supports themselves through working, largest group. Socialism is the idea that that is supremely undemocratic. Society's resources, how we deploy them, including our labor, should be something that is decided democratically by all of us. And what that means is that it's a rejection of the very idea of class, of having some who rule or own and others who are ruled or work. It means that we all contribute and that we all decide. That's it. I think that's my, my, my short answer. To me, that doesn't sound very scary. And I think um, when people imagine socialism as being a scary thing, they it's, it's amazing how often they end up um, reproducing capitalism. It's like, oh, a small group of people is going to be in charge. Yeah, that, that's, that's like capitalism. There will be um, people, many, many people will go without another thing that is endemic to capitalism. Um, so I think uh, most people understand some of the things we don't want. Um, we don't want to be have a small group of people rule over us. Um, we would like to have our needs met. And so if that's your goal, then my answer is that that's fundamentally what socialism is. I, I, I talked about this in my book, Pandemic Capitalism. The idea was a layer cake where the base was socialism, where the, this first layer of the cake, everyone got their, their food, water, shelter, clothing, all the basics are taken care of. And then I said, you can slather all the icing on top of that for capitalism that you want. As long as people aren't being coerced to work to get their basics, I don't give a damn. But can we at least get to the point where people have all their basic needs taken care of, where, where we take care of that mutually as, as an idea, as a, as a place where people can think about you know, how we might restructure things and not have all of this, all of this need out there where, where people can't take care of themselves. So anyways, let's, um, let's, let's move on. Let's talk about what you've read recently. I love, love to jump in early on about what people have been reading. What's, what's been interesting, maybe something that's helped you see something differently or just something really excellent that, that you've read recently. Okay. So I've got a few things. Um, I'd go through these periods where sometimes I'm only reading one thing, sometimes reading a lot of things. And I think mm -hmm. with the world on fire, it often means <laughs> that I'm reading lots of different things. So yeah. the one thing I finished recently was um, Robert Paxton's The Anatomy of Fascism. And so this is one of the, the kind of core um, books on this topic. There's a lot of interest in this topic at the moment. His understanding of fascism is a, is a relatively narrow one, but it's also one of the things that he's interested in is kind of uh, fascism as a process. So he takes us through kind of five stages of fascism. You know, his argument is, is that only two countries have ever made it to the fifth stage, which is Italy and, and Nazi Germany, but that many you often see instances of the first phase and sometimes places will make it further along. Um, it's really interesting to me for a number of reasons. And one is, is that I just think there's a lot of fascism talk right now where people are not being very um, careful in thinking through what they're saying. They're not, they may be disagreeing because they have different understandings of what fascism means. You know, instead of 
defining our terms and figuring out where we disagree. We kind of, you know, dunk on each other and things. And so, you know, I, I don't necessarily agree with everything in it, but it's a, it's a really clear um, argument for how this sort of goes. And I learned a lot and I find it much more interesting to think about the, the parallel, the things that are parallel and the things that aren't rather than kind of an on off switch of this is, or is not a thing. I'm a big fan of the question, like in what way, not Yes or no. So another thing I'm reading is um, Prison by Another Name by Maya Shenwar and Victoria Law, which uh, they are abolitionist scholars. And the subtitle is The Harmful Consequences of Popular Reforms. And basically what they're looking at is that as there always is, there's um, movements for reforming prisons, which has always been the case since prisons came into existence. They were a reform measure. And so what they're interested in is the ways that a lot of things that are presented as alternatives end up reinforcing the very same dynamics that are the reasons why we're criticizing prisons in the first place, trying to make us understand like the sorts of things that we want to avoid. And then, you know, what the what real alternatives might look like that aren't just kind of recreating those same sort of dynamics. So then the other one I'm reading, The American Crucible by uh, Robin Blackburn. So slavery, emancipation and human rights. And so it's a very kind of broad history of, of slavery, particularly in the in the, um, Americas, but it's you know, very much taking into account political economy and things like that, the development of race and the ways that race and racism look different in different parts of the world at different times and the same uh, true with slavery as well. I think we all, most of us understand the importance of slavery to our world, but I feel like often our understandings of it are not great. So um, it's a particularly helpful, not only for kind of its argument, but kind of like laying out the, the state of the debates and everything like that. It seems like it's always in a historical context and not as something that has very meaningful vestiges in the way it affects people's lives today. Mm -hmm. Let's talk more about abolition. That, that's uh, that's that's an interesting area where I feel like I've learned a lot from you. Could could you maybe explain the concept in in terms of how you advocate for it and what you're trying to achieve? Sure. So the word abolition in this context, we're talking about police and prison abolition. Sometimes people use abolition or prison abolition as a shorthand, but generally speaking, what they're talking about is the entirety of the prison industrial complex. Police, prisons, jails, parole, criminal courts, the whole thing, that whole system. The notion of abolition calls back to the original abolitionist movement, abolish slavery in the United States, which is obviously even today, an unfinished um, project, but it is meant to call forth that. It is uh, generally understood as kind of within um, what we might call the black radical tradition, which as Ruth Wilson Gilmore reminds us is for everyone. And a big part of it is the notion that these um, systems, prison and all this, are inherently racist. Um, they are inherently at odds with kind of uh, notions of economic equality, um, that they generally fail at the things that they are alleged to do, that they do not produce safety, that they often victimize people mm -hmm. who are themselves victims. So the idea is it both um, fails to protect people and actually also does tremendous harm to people. And that um, while often when you look at the problems, the people will say, well, we need to fix them. We have to reform them because they're so important. Um, and abolitionists would say that that's not possible, um, that these problems are inherent in these institutions, in these ideas. So I talk about the, um, the notion of crime itself as being inherently regressive, deflecting our attention from the things we should be paying attention to, in particular harm, because there are lots of things that are harmful that aren't crimes. There are things that are crimes that aren't harmful. Um, there are things that um, are technically illegal, but aren't treated as crime. So we're much, uh, it's better for us to think about 
what the real harms are and then what we can do about it. Because then the other thing is if you begin with the notion that the problem is crime, then there's only one real solution, policing and prisons. Whereas abolitionists would argue that what we're really talking about in the things that get caught up in that category of crime are all a whole host of things that have a whole host of solutions. Sometimes the solution is that we don't do anything, that people just need to be left alone. Sometimes the answer is we have to help you know meet people's basic needs. Sometimes it's about finding ways for us in our communities to um, provide public safety, protect each other. And it could be about preventing harm and also trying to address harm once it happens. One of the things that the Shenoir and Law book talks about, this idea that we often kind of are asked, what are you going to replace these things with? And the presumption is there's like one institution we're going to have that's going to re replace these things and do something mm -hmm. similar. And the answer from abolitionists is, in fact, no, we're going to have a whole host of things that are going to focus on meeting our needs and addressing harm. It's not going to be any one thing. It's going to be things that happen at a societal level, at a community level, and an individual level. It's kind of all of those things. That is a complex uh, answer. It's not crime and punishment is a simple answer. And, and abolition is um, inherently uh, more complex, which can be frustrating for some people. Think about like domestic disputes. If, if you call the police, you have someone coming to the door with a firearm. If you don't have police, you have some kind of community service that directly uh, responsible for things like that or is part of what they're doing, or they're not coming to the door with a firearm, you, you've got a completely different scenario. Yeah, and I think you're, you're hitting on something really important, which is um, one is oftentimes there are people around before the police arrive. Police can't be everywhere. No matter how many police we have, they can't be everywhere. And so this is where, you know, if we think about like notions around like bystander intervention, the idea mm -hmm. is, is that before something gets out of hand, there can be people around who are trained, who maybe can work together to try and stop something from escalating. And also that sometimes, you know, what someone wants in a situation is not punishment, is not someone to come in with a gun. Oftentimes what people want is for them, uh, the harm to stop um, and for them to be protected. And maybe for the person and sometimes it's even for the person doing the harm. They want that person protected, which is one of the things that we forget oftentimes is that the vast majority of, say, let's let's use the example you gave, domestic violence, the vast majority of the time people don't call the cop. This is true for rape, for example. The vast majority of cases, people don't call the cops. There's lots of reasons why people don't do that, both in terms of the concerns about how it's going to treat the other person, person doing the harm, and, and oftentimes the way that the, the person who's been harmed themselves will be treated. Police in prisons is kind of a one-size-fits-all answer, um, and oftentimes people have lots of different understandings of what they want. And then the other piece is, wouldn't it be even better... Um, not that we would ever do this perfectly, but if we could reduce the likelihood of these things happening in the first place, you know, what if people's lives weren't as harsh and stressed um, mm -hmm. and their needs were met? When, isn't that sure. less likely that they will be angry and do bad things? What if people teach people how to learn to manage their own anger? What if people are intervening as they see someone going down a bad path? Every time you're, you see one of these, you know, mass shootings, we learn almost without fail that they had a history of violence against women um, before that, often maybe against animals and things like that, or, you know, doing other sorts of things. Police don't or can't intervene in those sort of situations, but wouldn't it be great if we had people that did so that it's both reducing the likelihood that these sort of things happen in the first place, handling them better in the moment, and then often mm -hmm. in addressing them on the back end by helping people's needs that rise out of that harm be met as well. Sounds nice. You triggered a memory of mine from Tressie Cottom wrote a blog post several years ago about an incident where she was driven home by a cab and the cabbie got nasty with her as she was being dropped off and while being fearing for her life, she 
refused to call the police because she was afraid they were they would kill him. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't imagine being in that position. So it's and Anyways. it's. Yeah, I mean, that was a beautiful piece and people should always read Tressie. Um, But I mean, that's come up in a number of cases, even the really high profile ones. George Floyd, um, you had someone, you know, he was he was suspected of passing a fake $20 bill and the law required the storekeeper to call the police. And they did. And George Floyd was killed as a result. And the store owner said, I would have never done that if I knew that could happen. There's been other cases like that where someone has called the police, sometimes not even because they were concerned for themselves, but they worried about a person. They seem to be having some sort of breakdown or what have you, looking for a mental health check-in, and then the end result is that someone dies. I think it's real easy for us to not realize that what you're doing in that moment is you're calling in a violence worker. Um, and if we relate to it, doesn't mean you would necessarily never call, but you we re- definitely think twice. And it's a, it's a pretty important kind of conceptual shift. Let's move on. Let's go to the uh, the story of the moment, the extreme madness that's going on in, in U.S. politics in the context of the uh, ongoing pandemic. What what would you recommend that people focus on to try to stay grounded and get through this? Because I mean, my, from, from my perspective, I'm you know, 12 hours ahead of the U.S. And it's like every evening, the, the morning news, my, my evening, the morning news starts up. And it's like, what fresh hell is this? Every every day, it's just madness. Any, any thoughts on that? Yeah, so um, in an earlier life, I learned how to be involved in political conversations and be like legitimate in that world. And what I learned was, is that you like watch the news and you kind of talk about things the way that other people talk about things. You know, the the issues that other people cared about were the ones you took seriously. And if serious people didn't take something seriously, then you didn't. Um, I'm glad (laughs) I grew out of that pretty quickly. Um, But yeah, I remember um, as an undergrad, my um, very first class is being told uh, in political science by professors like you should be reading the New York Times and Washington Post cover to cover every day. And I did for a time. And then I realized it was a terrible idea. You know, then I shifted into kind of skimming multiple papers, including ones that, you know, were in, you know, like the UK or Germany or what have you, which is probably a much better practice than what I'm doing now. But I think a lot of people feel a kind of civic obligation to just take it all in, to watch the debate, to um, know what has happened today. You know, if it's your job or whatever, or you enjoy it or, or, or you're compelled, you know, that's one thing. But I think a lot of people feel they ought to. And I don't think that for the most part, that's healthy. I always think about Utah Phillips had a line and it was something like the news tells you about all the awful things that happened yesterday that it's too late to do anything about. Um <laughs> I don't think most people, when they think about their news consumption or even their stance towards politics, think about it in terms of um, how does this help me navigate the world, right? I think it's much more of either just like taking it all in or feeling like it's really important to be a part of these conversations. And I think that was absurd when I was, you know, when I learned it in the early 90s. And I think it is far more absurd at this particular moment. And so... Number one is, I think, giving yourself license to just not take it all in, to unplug, to see something come through your timeline and say, you know what, I don't need to know what that is. You know, it's like when you see that some something awful that Trump did, you don't necessarily always have to, to find out what it is. And, the you know, the, the other thing, too, is it goes the other way where I see people posting things, you know, like a constant barrage of like, here's why Donald Trump is awful, which is true, obviously. But 
it's not clear what that does if you're on Facebook all day, like posting, you know, Occupy Democrats memes about Donald Trump that may or may not be true. One of the things that I think is important is to kind of think about like, why am I doing this and how am I relating to these sorts of things? It doesn't mean that you turn it off entirely. I think it's it's important to stay informed, but there's a big difference between staying informed and kind of taking in the fire hose of nonsense. Um, and I think it's important not to confuse those things. And then the other thing is to think about where, you know, your position in the world and what you can contribute. I think a lot of people spend their time with politics arguing with their political opponents. They're like ideologically committed opponents. So you'll see people that, you know, Democrats, and they're really concerned about arguing with their people they know that are conservative or Trump supporters. And I'm not suggesting that there's never a time when there's value in that. But I am suggesting that the nothing is going to change because you fought with your uncle on Facebook and convinced him <laughs> to become, you know, to reject Trump and Trumpism. Maybe you should call him out if for homophobia or racism or whatever, like I, that, that has some value. That's a, that's a very different sort of project than, you know, you'll have these people like, well, go home over Thanksgiving and argue with your, your racist aunts and uncles, because of course it's never your, never you or your cousins, right? It's only the older generation, you know, as if like, and that's why we have the problems we have because you haven't done that. And I think um, what is often forgotten, I think by most people is that the, most people are not engaged in politics in any meaningfully way or, um, if they are, it's it's pretty marginal. And so political conversations are dominated by people who are like, who's are just immersed in politics. But then you have this large group of people who are either marginal to it or, or completely disconnected. And doesn't happen out of, as is often said, like privilege, the vast majority of people who are disconnected are, you know, working people, poor people who no one's really talking to them for the most part, um, which isn't to say that the outcomes are, are equal for them. But if you look at, for example, the Biden campaign, who he's talking to, he's talking to upper middle class and wealthy suburbanites. You know, he's that's who the target audience of the talk of the campaign and of the ads are. And so one of the tricks then is that there's a lot, many people who maybe you could get in your on your side, many people who you think your team is operating on behalf of, but aren't being engaged. And it is true that people are more likely to get involved when they're engaged, when you talk to them, when you, you know, knock on their door or call them or whatnot. That does matter. Our conversation often acts as if turnout is constantly 100%, as if everyone's, you know, 100% engaged, and they're not. And so, you know, thinking about, you know, who who are the people in my world that I could connect and do things with? Because I think that's the other thing is our politics is often very... I don't know, it's like a consumer model. It's very individualist. So we worry about like my individual vote. You know, it's like we want to stamp out. Is there someone who's thinking about voting for the Green Party? I got to go yell at them. It's <laughs> unlikely that yelling at them is going to change their mind. But also, you know, politics is a retail business. Like why why go after someone who opposed to what you're doing as opposed to kind of worry about all the people you might bring in otherwise? Having that reset where you think about politics as a, as a as a thing that's an activity it's a collective activity and one where you can do more than just clap or boo thumbs up thumbs down and then send a check which is kind of the standard ways that we're taught to to relate to all this stuff it's funny I, w I was waiting for you to when you were discussing the arguing with family members on on facebook and that for you to say chris this is an intervention <laughs> <laughs> it's it's funny i'm, I'm actually writing about um a chapter for the next WPC book about how to use social media, how to um, how to read the news to try to be intentional with your time so that you're not getting sucked into 
um, reading things that the algorithms are feeding you, you know, trying to help people understand how those things work, uh, how they're, how they're designed for addiction mm-hmm. and, and how to kind of challenge your biases and get outside of, of your own bubble. And so very, very interesting and timely stuff here. Um, given where we're at with the, with the U S politics and in this moment, the election, you know, the outcome is going to be whatever, whatever happens, happens. But what, what do you see as like the, the core challenge to U S politics in general? What's, what's that root problem that you would have people focus on addressing? The short answer for what the root of the problem is capitalism. And so I think when a lot of people hear that, they hear, they think you mean the economy. And and that's not how I understand it. I understand it as a social totality. It includes things that we would think of as politics as opposed to the economy. It includes what the state does, things, issues around racism and sexism. This is all part of uh, the social totality of capitalism. The other answer would be kind of inequality. The tremendous inequality that, you know, always you have under capitalism, particular where we are in this moment in history. Related is this, a a notion of politics where among Democrats, I think you see a real desire to avoid conflict with uh, the Republicans. In particular, elite Democrats are very interested and have been for some time around about governing with the Republicans. I'm convinced that there's there's a point in American history where the Democrats decided that they were not legitimate to govern on their own. There was also a point when the Republicans decided the Democrats weren't legitimate to govern. The Republicans have no compunction around this, right? And so you have a real challenge where one side is constantly trying to find the ways to work with the other side and the other side is trying to burn everything down. I mean, this got worse under Trump, but it's not new. It's, it's much older than that. You know, one of the things that I see as I look around is that you have uh, the Republicans particularly interested in fighting things that aren't problems. <laughs> um, either they're imaginary or they're not, they're good, not bad. And then the Democrats mostly, especially now, seeming to be pretty hands-off about trying to solve problems. And I don't want to suggest when I say solving problems that this could ever be like a political, it's always like um, contested and values are at stake. But, you know, the, the if I look at the presidential campaign, the message seems to be, we're going to go back to normal and you're not going to have to think about politics anymore. And I get that's very, you know, why a lot of people find that appealing. But when I look around and I look at the climate change and joblessness and, you know, crumbling infrastructure, and you could just go on and on, it's going to require such a a massive action. And it's going to require just a transformation of our politics to address any of these problems. So this idea that we're going to go back to normal and, you know, we'll have good Republicans and good Democrats get together and kind of come to common sense uh, bipartisan solutions that are just going to chip away at these problems is, is pretty horrifying. The two things that I really want I hope that people can can do more of and certainly seeing some of it already being willing to demand things they want and not letting those demands be limited by what they're told is possible, um, whether that's possible policy wise or politically. People who say that largely do it to, well, a number of reasons, but one is to protect their own power. History has shown that those people don't know what they're talking about. And so we should listen to them. We should demand what we need. You know, let them figure it out how to do it, but like make those demands. We need to think about the ways those demands connect. So instead of thinking of like, you know, are we going to do something about this problem or that problem? It's about how we can tie together all the different movements, all the different issues um, to try and see the common roots of them and, and challenge them in the ways we can solve them together. I look at like, you know, I mean, climate change is obviously a, a massive growing problem. Um, that we have to deal with. But if we, if I just look at like healthcare, 
Mm-hmm. I've, I've lived in Thailand for five years now. Before I moved to Thailand, I had I was working for a big corporate. I had health insurance through my company. I put off every healthcare uh, need for the last three or four years that I was in the U.S. I didn't go unless you know you know it was absolute things were becoming urgent. I skipped um, you know annual checkups and things like that. If a doctor gave me prescriptions, I'd go to the pharmacy and, and negotiate with the pharmacist. Wait, that's palliative. I don't need that. Last week, I went to have something looked at. I saw a generalist surgeon and two specialist surgeons. And you know, I've got a basic insurance policy. And on, on top of the insurance, I paid about 70 bucks. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I don't even think about it. If something's, if I need to see, if I need healthcare, I just go. Um, it's just a completely different circumstance and it's just really frustrating to me that we have the systems in place to to give care but people don't get it because of the the way the system's arranged and it just drives me insane yeah and this is a good example of um the the challenge is simultaneously that you have many actors who make money make profit um Mm -hmm. from um, all the elements of the system. And then secondarily that you have people in government who do not want to suggest to people that they're actually going to help them. I honestly think that that's part of the challenge that one of the fascinating things with the Obama administration is some of the good things that they did for people that they intentionally hid, like they were designed Mm -hmm. in ways so that it wasn't obvious. And they claimed, you know, the people who, who supported it claimed that they did that because like, oh, then people will be, you know, okay with it. I've never seen any evidence that that was necessary. What I think it's there to do is to the, the rest of us don't get us in our in, in our heads that these problems are solvable and like we should actually get stuff. And healthcare is another example too, where the the answers are actually pretty simple, and we're constantly told like, no, no, it's very complicated. There's no way to figure it out. And if you did figure it out, there's no way we could pay for it. And of course, if you know, I mean, you obviously know, but as anyone does. If you look at anywhere else in the world, that's not the case. If you look at our system, it doesn't do any of the things they claim to do. I too have employer-based insurance. I am I'm very lucky. It's as these things go, it's good. And it's still a tremendous pain to figure out like who I'm allowed to go to and how much it will cost. And, you know, I went to, you know, recently to get new new glasses and get my eyes checked. And they said, well, you know, we can um, we can do a true eye exam and also like give you your prescription today. We can do it all at once, but we can't charge both things to your insurance. So you either have to come for two days or you're going to pay out of pocket for one of these things. And, you know, and I, I, I had the money to do it. It wasn't so bad, but that's just absurd. Everything about this is absurd. The idea that you can't just go get the care you need. And, you know, we talk about insurance, but it's obviously bigger than that. There's a there's a hospital closure crisis in the United States that interestingly is affecting in particular rural areas, poor rural areas and poor urban areas, places that are, you know, usually understood as predominantly black and predominantly white, um, having a very clear common material interest in solving this problem. And I think it's interesting that there's very little talk about that, um, that you could see that, um, you know, wouldn't it be nice if we said, you know, we're going to have this movement and we're going to say that there, there'll be a hospital in your community. We're not going to let them close. If they do, we'll, we'll turn it into a public hospital or a co-op um, and we'll reopen them. And so Medicare for All is going to help with that when we when we pass it. Um, but the, the larger question of saying that having people's health care met just as a right 
is uh, requires something more. It's going to require also making sure we have the providers and changes to the way we do these things. They have a Medicare for all type of program here where everyone can go and, and they just go to, a, to the general doctor and um, you know they, they've got processes in place that keep people from going straight to specialists and, and running up costs of the system. So you have to wait around. You might spend a couple of hours at the hospital to get through everything. But for, for the first three years, I was working at a public university and I had the same insurance that, that uh, the people that are from here have. And I mean, I was, you know, in heaven. Sure, I'm sitting around, you know, bored, not getting anything done for a few hours. But my God, to suddenly have health care provided, it, it was just amazing. I mean, yeah. and, and I'm just dying to see that happen for the people in the U.S. And the, the wait time question is always fascinating because... I think this is one of the things that's very distorted by who gets to like be on TV and like write in the newspapers and things like that, where you have these people on, you know, that'll be like in Canada, sometimes people have to wait two weeks to have surgery. I'm like, what? what are you talking about? Like, you have to wait to go to the doctor. I'm like, again, I have good health insurance, but I can't just walk into the doctor. Like, I, but I, I assume that these people can because they're wealthy. But this is what happens when you have a political conversation that is dominated by by wealthy people. The things that they think are awful are things that most of us would think would be phenomenal. But like it's scare tactics. And you know, I'm a big believer that one of the elements of Medicare for all should definitely be banning any sort of private insurance. And when I tell people that, they think I'm I'm uh, off the wall. But what I explain is. The only reason you would have private insurance in a system where everything is covered is so someone can buy their way to the front of the line. And I don't want that. I want the rich people to be in the same, get the same care that everyone else gets. And so the only way that they can get better care is if they improve it for everyone else or maybe fly to another part of the world. But like that seems to me uh, a valuable thing. And so I, I have these conversations sometimes with people who are like, but our, our, what we really want is just to make sure everyone has access. I want to make sure that everyone gets the same care. And that means we're addressing the problems around racism. It means that, you know, wealthy people can't buy themselves to the front of the line. It's really fascinating to see because what you'll see is people say, well, there's lots of ways we can get everyone covered. And I'm like, that may be true. I'm not convinced they're politically viable, but like just as an abstract matter, it may be true. There aren't many ways to ensure that it is equal, mm -hmm. which I think most people who support Medicare for all like I do, that's actually part of the point. Okay, let's uh, let's let's move on. We got um, let's let's talk about how do we make things better. I know you're involved a lot with political education. Can you can you talk about what you do in in that uh, realm? Yeah. So one of the things, the challenges that I'm kind of dealing with is we're having a resurgence of interest in socialism in the United States. It's been going on for I don't know four or five years now, which is great. If you look, particularly among young people not super young. I think sometimes people are imagining it's just the teens. People younger than me, there are massive differences in politics by age in the United States. And it's not just the United States. You're seeing similar dynamics happening around the world as well. And I think it's easy to think that that's just the way it always was, but it's not. It's not even, if you think of presidential politics, it's not even really until Obama when you see a pretty big age gap in terms of the support for the Democrats versus the Republicans. And so that was kind of part of what was happening. And so the Republican Party increasingly, um, their base is the elderly people. Then the other thing is, is that you've seen, you know, the way I think of it is you had the Iraq war, you had Katrina, you had the financial crisis, you know, the Democrats sweep into power, they do some things, um, they don't, none of those things go as far as needed. Many of them kind of 
You know, if you look at the ACA, it got hobbled right out of the gate. We're still battling over it. And ultimately, it wouldn't have solved everything anyway. And so I think now we have a new round of people experiencing a tremendous um, economic dislocation. And we know that in this recession, it's hitting poor people much harder than everyone else at a rate that's very different than prior recessions. I think you had a lot of young people who, in particular, you know, I always think of it around uh, 2016, you had people who either supported Bernie Sanders and then were disappointed um, when he lost and that that radicalized them. Or you had people that supported Hillary Clinton and they kind of thought, well, you know, this is what we got to do. We're going to line up. This is what we get and this is what will win. Um, and it didn't work and it didn't work to buffoonish, evil, uh, go down the list. And I think there was a lot of people who throughout that 2016 election thought moderation is how we're going to win, how can, how we can win things. And that kind of blew up in their face. And so that's a radicalizing experience for a lot of people. Rethought a lot of their assumptions around politics as a result of that. There's a lot of it around just young people not feeling like people are talking, the, the people in charge are talking to them about the problems they have, about the things that matter. Whether that's thing, you know, free college and, and college debt is that, that sort of thing where it's a particularly an issue for young people, but it's also things like climate change for, you know, people look thinking like we're the ones that are going to inherit the planet and, you know, what's, what are you all doing to it? So what you have then is you have people who will come to the conclusion that they're socialist, but they don't necessarily know what that means. Or, you know, maybe they feel, you know, I've, I've talked to people and there's like, I can kind of explain it, but I, you know, I have trouble or I don't know how to talk with other people about it. So, you know, one of the first things is just helping people kind of understand this thing that they're becoming a part of and kind of put some words to what that might look like, help them to understand some of the debates, um, which can be very daunting. You know, left debates can be very daunting and feel like you're supposed to read all these people and know all these terms and, yeah, you know. Someone uses a term, like a slightly different term for something and everyone's like, oh yeah, that's what sec there is. And people are like, what the hell is going on? What I'm trying to do is to kind of create space for people to learn about these things and to understand that there are reasons why it can be difficult to understand. And it's not just you that you're failing at understanding it. It, it can be hard. Um, there's reasons why. There's a lot of people have an interest in obscuring what socialism and capitalism are and, you know, or, you know, misrepresenting it. So, you know, you hear a lot of things that doesn't make any sense. Um, there are certainly an incentive for some people to claim these mantles um, when maybe they, they have no right to that. So these are these are hard things. And so I try and help people kind of sort themselves into that. And the idea is that it's um, we can do this in a way where it's a relatively easy next step and that people can kind of build the knowledge and competence to kind of work from there. And then the other piece of it is something I've talked about as we've been talking today, which is um, sometimes people come into, you know, this sort of thing. I often get questions like, well, what is DSA's position on this? You know, DSA should do something about why. And it's like, well, no, man, you're, you're, you all are, you're DSA now. Like, what are we going to, what are we going to do? That learn, thinking about it in those terms is like, this is not a thing that's going to be done for you, but now actually it's a space where you can help organize with other people to do those things. Um, hopefully to encourage them to look at other people who are already doing the organizing rather than, you know, building it from scratch because it's almost always something that's already happening. But kind of that's a, it's a stance towards politics that I'm hoping to kind of encourage people to shift. We talk about this, for example, when we're talking about eco-socialism and, you know, someone will say, well, you know, what are we going to do about private plane travel? My uh, comrade who teaches about this said, you know, when we did this, well, we don't have any power to do anything about that now. 
the question is like how we build power and then what would we want to do so like what do you want to do what do you think we should do um and that's a very different way of thinking about things to kind of taking some ownership over how to solve these problems this is something that comes up with an abolition a lot too you actually already have skills and capabilities that you use to deal with problems and so the the challenge is not learning everything brand new it's about identifying those and building on them but you know as opposed to call the cops and let them solve the problem, right? It's what are we going to do to solve the problem? And, and at a base level, like that's kind of the very first step towards socialism is relating to the all these things and saying, what are we going to do about it? How can we address this as opposed to what will government do for us? What will the experts do for us? You know, relevant, but it's not the whole thing. So, so if someone's listening to this and they're saying, they're thinking to themselves, this sounds great. I'd love to do this sort of stuff with my community, um, you know, kind of learn mutually and, you know, build that power and, and, and drive change. And they don't know where to start. Do you have any recommendations or any resources you can point them to so that they could say, okay, there's, there's my foothold where I can get going? Yeah. I mean, it really depends on where you are and kind of what your interests are. But I would say, you know, one thing you can do is look around to the groups that are already out there. And that can be, it's not always easy, but it's it maybe not as daunting as it feels. A lot of times there are people that are already organizing and would love for someone to get plugged in. So kind of step one is kind of looking for that. And that could be, you know, maybe that's in DSA, maybe it's in another socialist organization, maybe it's in an organization that's working on a particular issue, um, is like a neighborhood group. There's all sorts of things. I am a big believer that you plug in in the place that makes sense for you and you try different things and you see what works out um, rather than kind of like there's a there's a single way we're all going to do X and then that's going to work out. I think that that's not how it works, that it's, it's much more about... Um, trying everything and seeing seeing where they work and when things work, kind of um, trying to replicate them. Um, another thing they can do, and a little self-serving, is they can check out the Metro DC DSA Socialist Night School website. So we um, post all of our, or many of our sessions online. So since the pandemic, everything's moved um, to video. So that's a, a place you can start. You can look around for, you know, reading groups and things like that. I routinely on social media will say, this is what I'm reading. And if anyone would like to talk with me about it, I'd love to. Um, lots of things that that are very difficult to figure out on your own are much easier if you can do it with other people. And so if you can find other, and, and often there are other people who are interested in that sort of thing that would uh, respond positively if, if you're asking. Speaking of um, readings, I, I typically, you know, a lot of the stuff I read is kind of timely um, because of the nature of what tends to be written. But when, when I think of something that I want to recommend that's kind of timeless, I always go back to the jungle is something that, that I recommend to people to kind of compare with the current circumstances. Is there anything you would recommend as a, a, a kind of timeless reading um, for the listener? So that's a good question. I, I usually like talking with someone about the things that they're interested in, the things that are puzzling them and trying to think about whether there's something in particular that would be of interest to them. One thing that I got to go back to a lot that has influenced me tremendously, and I know it's influenced a lot of the organizing um, here in DC as well, is um, Pivot and Cloward's Poor People's Movements. It's a, you know, so the book asks the question about why movements of poor people, you know, come about, how they succeed and why they fail. And 
the reason it influenced me so much is because it really um, they're asking you to think about politics through a very different frame than the ones we normally do. One that breaks out of thinking of things in very formal terms. We vote and then people win election and then those people do the things we want. And if they don't, we vote them out of office. And that's that's politics. You know, that they're very interested in the fact that like most of the time, the vast majority of poor people are not engaged. And that's been true throughout U.S. history. Much of that history, they were denied the rights to, to be involved in politics. But they, you know, in terms of who who the parties are trying to engage, it tends to be skewed towards the top. They're very big on the notion that I think is really important that like Disagreements in politics are not a matter of ignorance. They're not a matter of lack of knowledge, which we see this point made repeatedly. They are a matter of people having fundamental interest and value conflicts. And so one of the things that they emphasize is that there's no way you can seek fundamental change without without there being blowback, right? There's always going to be pushback. The two things that I really want I hope that people can can do more of and certainly seeing some of it already is being willing to demand things they want and not letting those demands be limited by what they're told is possible. And I think mm-hmm. um, a lot of standard uh, Democratic Party, like liberal approaches to politics are premised on the notion that if we just do it this certain way, then they won't fight back, um, whether they is the Republicans or the insurance companies or whoever. And I just think fundamentally that's not true. That The change would threaten their interests. And so they will fight back. And so that alone, that little shift is a huge shift in the way we, you know, thinking about politics and a lot of the kind of official discourse um, is inconsistent with that. Yeah, I think I think that's why you get so much incrementalism where it's, you know, we'll just try for this little thing and mm-hmm. that'll get through. And the little thing doesn't get through, but, you know, you, you've left on the table the opportunity to demand something meaningful that would actually stir people up and actually want to support it and get the power that you need. So. And yeah, and I think that you, you've hit on exactly the point. And I always go back to something that Sarah Jaffe said. Um, she was talking about the LA teacher strikes from a few years back. Um, but I, the, the lesson broadly applies. And it's that you, had, you have to give some people something big enough to fight for, right? Mm-hmm. So if it is true that it's not just a matter of get the opposition not fighting, but we have to overcome opposition, you want to do something meaningful, but also like people aren't going to go to bat. They're not going to throw down for minor change. This is not going to happen, but they will if you promise something big. It's not an automatic thing. And that's the other thing I think people think, oh, you know, we're just, you think that if we just say like, we're going to deliver you this big stuff that people will automatically happen. Another element of this is trust. It's not enough to say that you're going to to fight for something, get behind us. It's the trust that you're going to do it, that you're going to keep people's interests in mind and that sort of thing. A lot of what looks like apathy or acquiescence or what have you is oftentimes that people don't trust us enough to, to get engaged. But if we show that we're worthy of that trust and we fight and we win things and kind of demonstrate that it's possible, what people are interested in is going to shift tremendously. And I think that's mm-hmm. what you see in a big union campaign is a lot of building a trust, a lot of demonstrating things, not just telling them and ultimately building up the power, as you say, to win. Yeah, building trust and, and giving something that people can actually hope for. I think that to me, that was the biggest failing of the uh, Clinton campaign was that what, you know, what, what was there for people to, to fight for and hope for? And it just didn't feel like there was anything for them there. The message always seemed to me to be that um, you want the right sort of person to be in charge. Mm-hmm. You know, 
And we're going to have the right sort of people. And whether that's people from the Clinton previous Clinton administration or people from the Bush administration, right, was going to be, or the Obama, it was, it was we're going to bring, you know, the, the adults from both sides, right, um, to protect these institutions. And I think it really missed that for many, many people in the United States, those institutions have not served them well. And I just, I think it's a, it's a fundamental mistake to think that people are going to go to bat for the U.S. Senate or for like American foreign policy leadership or what have you. You know, they're worried about much more fundamental things. And so, you know, two years of Donald Trump burning things down was enough to really light a fire under people. So that's why, I mean, you saw a big turnout boost in 2018. I think we're going to see it again, although who knows. But, you know, it's pretty horrifying to think that you you had to go through two, four years of Donald Trump in order to get that, um, as opposed to if you had engaged people over stuff they actually cared about in the first place. If he loses and they don't make a stark departure from where we've been heading, what do we get four years from now? I mean, that's that's a terrifying thought for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's worth remembering, maybe not for you, but for many people, that like the last two Democratic presidencies came in the wake of tremendous failure for the previous administration, lost control over Congress um, two years later with a Republican resurgence, a conservative Republican resurgence, um, and then really never got their feet after that. So, you know, both Clinton and Obama were able to win re-election, but in terms of uh, the, the agenda, the driving seat, it really shifted away from them. And, you know, the lesson of that seems to me pretty clear that you don't walk in the door. I mean, I think about Bill Clinton, he walked in the door and the first thing he focused on was NAFTA, which is a tremendous betrayal of major constituencies in the Democratic Party of labor, environmentalism, and didn't really deliver much in terms for, uh, you know, people for the next election. So it's not super surprising that they got hammered two years later. With Obama, you had the ACA where, unfortunately, the way it was designed was some of the things that people didn't like happened kind of pretty early on out of the gate. And a lot of the benefits didn't happen until after the next time there was an election, which is not good. (laughs) One last question for you. There's a quote that I've seen you share on Twitter it's, it goes, we have to turn thinkers into fighters and fighters into thinkers from General Baker. Can, can you explain that for us? Yeah. So um, General Baker was um, part of the League of Revolutionary Black Workers in Detroit in the late 60s. Um, and so the League w- kind of grew out of union organizing in the plants in Detroit, where the plants themselves were actually very segregated. So this was among the black workers. The unions weren't particularly good at um, protecting the needs um, of the black workers. So they really organizing simultaneously against the bosses and against this um, these unions, although they, you know, were um, also trying to organize their, you know, the their white co-workers to join them because they didn't feel like their needs were actually met very well by the unions either. And so here you had relatively unformally educated um, black working class workers who were in the middle of a fight. And they also took political education very seriously. And so that they had, as is often the case, they had their newspapers and things like that kind of, but they were, um, they were simultaneously organizing and doing the political education. And I think part of this, this notion, it's a couple of things as I'm thinking of some of the conversations I've seen right lately around this sort of thing. There's a belief sometimes that theory is not something that is accessible or available to people that are poor, people that are working class, people that are black and brown, um, people who lack, you know, advanced educations, or that it's largely written by white men 
And neither of these things is true. It can certainly can be. Certainly plenty of theory is inaccessible. Although usually I find if it's inaccessible to most people, it's, you know, a slog for me as well. The other flip side is there's sometimes a notion that I'll hear people say, like, I don't need to read a Marx to know I'm oppressed or exploited. Mm -hmm. It's like, I know you don't. That's not why you read this stuff. You don't read this stuff. You don't read these things as a replacement for your experiences. Why would you be reading Marx in the first place if you didn't think you were exploited? You read Marx to understand why you're exploited and hopefully to do to find a way to do something about it. And I think that's true of all these sorts of things. If you're just doing the reading and it's unconnected to your experiences, if it's unconnected to organizing, then you're kind of spinning your wheels. Um, but if you're um, if you're not engaging these larger questions, you're missing out on tremendous insight. You know, the idea is to kind of bring these sort of things together. That doesn't always mean it has to be the same people. So, you know, I mean, I'm not an organizer. I'm, I do this sort of work. Um, I'm, I, I try when I can to support directly or indirectly the work of people who are doing the organizing. And I think that's okay. It's not that everyone has to be everything, but that these are all elements of what the movement needs. The other, I mean, if you, if you look at the history of left movements in the United States or around the world, you will see repeatedly certain patterns um, one is a focus on political education. I mean, just the number of groups where they're talking about the Black Panthers or the Young Lords, the Communist Party of the 30s and 40s, um, groups that are organizing today in Brazil, all sorts of places. Over and over, people come back to these questions around political education, understanding that this is important. The other thing is they overwhelmingly focus on addressing needs and not just in the long term, but in the short term, trying to intervene in the struggles that people have, whether it's preventing them from being evicted or making sure that they can eat, that there are jobs, that they have safe housing. People like myself, that's, their goal is a fundamental transformation of our society. That doesn't mean you sit on the sidelines on all the fights for today. It doesn't mean that things to do that we do today that mitigate people's suffering are not valuable. They actually are. And, you know, the idea being that you can, through struggle, you transform yourselves and each other. And that the political education is a piece of that, but it's not a matter of like, oh, just give people the right ideas and they do the right things. You know, those ideas are tools. They're lenses for how we think about the world, how we think about how things work. Um, they give us, um, they, they don't answer strategic questions, but they give insight to strategic questions. And I think that's another important point. There's this, sometimes people think that if we, if we can settle on, you know, some abstract things like this is or not, you know, A or B, that all the answers flow. The terrain is shifting and you're always trying to figure out what's going on as well. Um, so the question is not just, it's not, the strategic questions are never simple. They can be informed by all this. Um, they need to be informed by this and also seeing the way things play out in the real world then can fold back into our intellectual understandings of what's happening, right? All the answers are not there already in the books. These are living traditions um, that we're a part of. And hopefully if you're new to it, you're joining it and you're learning it to be a part of it. Um, not as a, as a gatekeeping thing, I must read all these things in order to do this, but because you can learn from those that came, that came before you. There's a whole years and years of valuable, um, thinking on on any subject and also an understanding that there's lots yet to be done and i think in these you kind of mentioned that these are complex shifting matters where, where it's always a, the circumstances are always evolving the more we have read some of the things that are common the the better we have a more of a shared frame of reference and can understand where each other's coming from so i think that's that's also really helpful so 
Yeah, and and hopefully having those conversations in productive ways. So, you know, I'm a big fan of trying to understand the the sources of disagreement with someone. So if, if you and I are having an argument, one of the first things I might try and do is try and figure out like, where is the place where we truly, you know, are coming from a different place? Is it an mm -hmm. assumption about the way the world works? Is it an assumption about like human nature? Is it a goal that we don't share? Is it maybe we're using a word in different ways? And it's not, I don't think that that's hard. It just takes constant work to do. And I just think about the number of kind of intra-left arguments that are that don't do that and in particular i mean the one you see over and over is people using the same word to be different things and not realizing that they're doing it and so you know other people look tremendously foolish because they using a word to mean different things and so you know trying to figure out how to have those productive conversations and and as much as possible articulating our assumptions um is really valuable and the, doing that sort of reading can be really helpful for that yeah, totally. And the primary terminology is, is often used in different ways and that so that you're talking past someone where, you know, you're saying you, you believe basically the same things, but because you're using terminology differently, you just sit there and bang your head against the wall. So I think that's really, really valuable to try to get a good, good understanding of what um, people are trying to say. What do they mean by things? It takes time. But if you're dealing with really important matters, it's incredibly valuable. Yeah. And the, in order to do that, you have to take other people seriously as, as full human beings, essentially. And I think that's the other thing is it's, um, it's very easy to assume that people that coming to different conclusions than you, that are critical of things you like or vice versa are doing so for, um, ill motives. Um, I understand that. And sometimes it's true, but I'm inclined to kind of leave that as a, a position of last resort and try and look at it from people, other people's perspective and see where, you know, what is it that they may believe that will lead them to the position they're taking. I'm also, mm -hmm. as I said, a big believer strategically in that there is no one right way. There are many paths and that you never know which one's going to work. It isn't to say that we can't make judgments that we might say, you know, this looks like a good option or, you know, this sort of thing is tried over and over and we shouldn't do it. I am much less interested in making sure that everyone is doing it my way than that um, people have the capacity to try um, different things. And I know that's a, that's a challenge for some people. They don't see it that way. But I think that the most important power we have is our own. It's people power. I, I don't see any way around it other than trying to engage each other as whole human beings in good faith as best we can. And yeah, I think um, I think that's a great note to end on. It's a really positive message. You know, people to, to me, people who are trying to get people to do it the way they think is right. To me, they're trying to amass power. And that's not to me the way you're going to make the kind of change that needs to be done. you got to enable everyone, mm -hmm. uh, give them the tools, give them knowledge and, and uh, enable them to go out and fight for a better world. So. Yeah. Great message. So thank you, David. I appreciate you taking time and sharing your knowledge and, and your passion. And hopefully this will give some people some some interesting and, and useful things to, to think about this as we move forward, because we've got so, so much we, we need to try to fix. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening to the Wicked Problems and Circular Systems podcast. If you enjoyed today's show, you can sign up for updates at wpcs.substack.com.